has music transported you? Where do you find inspiration from the natural world? Where do you find moments of everyday magic? Erland Cooper is a Scottish composer, producer, and multi-instrumentalist from Stromness Orkney. He has released three acclaimed studio albums, four additional companion albums, and multiple EPs, including a trilogy of work inspired by his childhood home. His work combines field recordings with traditional orchestration and contemporary electronic elements. Through music, words, and cinematography, he explores landscape, memory, and identity. Cooper also works across mixed media projects, including installation art, theater, and film. Erlind Cooper, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for joining us during World Oceans Month. I know that the oceans and the environment is something that's very important to your creative process. Well, I grew up a stone's throw from the North Sea. Occasionally, that ocean would come in our front door. I think the weather on an island kind of dictates the terms of the day ahead. So my childhood was full of exploring sea and the sea cliffs. So it means a lot to me. Oh, and you can hear it in your music. And I know from living, I'm part Irish and I lived for many years in Ireland and it's bound up with our biography, isn't it? That's a lovely expression, bound up with our biography it's, or our biology. It's, it's uh, yes, the kind of landscape that we brought up. I'm one of six children. My parents are a large family. And I always kind of imagine us as, when I look back at childhood, as kind of feral cats running <laughs> running free. Or maybe more like kind of seabirds. And, you know, mum would open the door and set us off for the day. And we'd, she wouldn't ring a bell and we'd come back. Her call would be enough to beckon us back for supper. But it was a very free lifestyle. And I do look back very fondly. I was very, very lucky to have that, have that opportunity to grow up on, a, on the highlands and islands. Indeed. And the purity of that sound. And you do field recordings. I'm just wondering, your earliest musical memories, are they the sounds of nature or are they those made by man-made instruments? It's a good question. My favorite singing voice is the voice of a curly. Do you know the bird, the sound it makes? The bird with the long curved beak. And it does this kind of bubbling melancholy that, that develops into this hopeful kind of sound and then it drips off. That's my favorite voice. And I suspect that, along with the sound of other seabirds, was pretty prominent in my youth. But also I grew up surrounded by traditional folk music, the Scottish folk music, but of course, Scandinavian folk music, Shetland music, reels, strathspeys and reels. So that was quite, I think, probably my first introduction to the sound of a violin would have been the fiddle, you know and hearing a reel, which is a quick dance. And of course, yes, the, uh, the sound of the waves and the changing weather. It changes five times a day in Orkney. <laughs> so you get the lot in one day. And so in a very real way, I mean, you have named the Earth as a collaborator in your latest album, Folded Landscapes, and is a collaborator in the actual, you can hear it in the process and in the post-production, and also charitably you are giving it. So just tell us a little bit about your collaborator, Nature, Mother Earth. Well, I suppose in, in every piece of music I've done as a kind of solo artist or writer, the earth itself has played a part, whether from a narrative point of view, a, you know, a sense of place or myth and mythology wrapped up in that location. I often feel landscapes can kind of hold memory and it's kind of 
plowing that field, that landscape to see what memory can, it can evoke in me and my kind of attitudes towards it. But of late, I've tried to explore that narrative a little bit further, this idea of collaborating with not just the landscape or the elements, which I've done in the past, the air, the sea, the land, and all of those three elements, all of the kind of areas that they bring, the additional aspects of narrative from folklore and community. I tried to go a little bit deeper in a couple of works of Lee. I recently wrote a classical piece of music, I suppose arguably my first concerto with Daniel Pioro, an incredible violinist. And I went up to Glasgow and we recorded this piece of work with this wonderful ensemble called Studio Collective. These fantastic musicians all gathered in one room. And I'd said to them prior that we're going to do this recording. And at the end of the recording, I'm going to put it onto a magnetic tape, so a 10-inch reel-to-reel tape, the kind of thing you see at the background on, you know, espionage films, you see it spinning. I use tape a lot in my process, and I told them that once I'd put it onto the tape, I would delete all the digital copies in making the record, mixing it, mastering, all of that stuff. So there only existed one copy, and all of a sudden, this piece of music, this process of creativity became incredibly precious to the people that made it. And somebody came up to me at the end, a cellist, and she said, what, are you really going to delete all these digital files and just have one copy. And I believe you're going to bury it. And I replied, well, I'm not going to bury it. I'm going to plant it in the earth, in the soil, somewhere in the Scottish Highlands. And I'd like the soil over the next three years to collaborate with the music. So it's my final collaborator. And magnetic tape doesn't like moisture. It doesn't like sunlight. It doesn't like salt. So it's not going to like these elements. But to me, I like the idea that the soil itself would effectively cause a process of decomposition. So I kind of like this idea of to compose, to decompose, and then recompose. So the final piece of work, when it comes out of the earth will be the recomposed sounding recording. And then I would rearticulate the score with the new sounds, these new artifacts of decomposition that have been created by Mother Nature. And everybody looked at me like I was, you know, not quite with it. But to me, it was a, it's a kind of meditation on value, patience, in a world of instant gratification. And it asks the question, at what point do you really value the arts or really value music? At what point in a creative process, in a collaboration, does it become incredibly precious and valuable? So it was asking myself lots of questions and teaching me how to be patient and collaborate with the timeline as well as earth itself. Well, that's so true. And we are collaborators with our listeners or our audience, you know, as they receive it. And I love that idea that it's a conversation with memory and time. And, you know, recently had a conversation with the sculptor, an underwater sculptor, Jason DeCarries Taylor, who buries these massive underwater sculptures, creating underwater museums. And in the same way, it's not finished until it is submerged. And the fish come and it adds this whole patina. So I'm hoping that the best elements of your music are retained. <laughs> this just because well, yours is a bit riskier. He <laughs> can always cast another mold. Well, do you know what? It's just music. Nothing would have pleased me more. 
I was so proud of the musician performances. Nothing would have pleased me more than to release it as it sounded there and then. But to me, it was important to leave it for three years and release it exactly as it sounds from the earth and then do a concert where all of the musicians perform it in its new state with all of its new artifacts. And then it becomes something other. But going back to the cellist who asked me, are you really going to do that? I said, yep. And then I said, well, did you enjoy these two days? And she replied, I'll never forget it. And that was an enough for me. It was a lovely moment. And I suppose those are the things I'm seeking. It's a collaboration with the elements on a deeper level, but also it asks the questions, when is something finished? What is important to us? What is valuable to us in the arts? And at what point does it become precious? In a sense, you do really become one with nature or the animals, particularly the musical animals, like the birds who sing every morning. I mean, they don't have recordings. So it's the living in the moment that we so often forget when we record every moment of our lives, like to be there then, because we're not going to be able to look at it on our iPhones later. Yes, I think looking at birds in that way is a great example of how to live. The starlings in Orkney, the fantastic bird, the starling. Of course, it has its incredible murmuration, which I'm sure you've seen in the wild, but it also has the ability to mimic its surroundings. It can mimic other birds to show off, to attract a mate, to, to sing in the morning. So a, a starling in Orkney will make the sound of a tractor <laughs> or it will make the sound of another seabird, another wader bird, like a uh, the, the local name is a shalder, a uh, oyster catcher. It was very confusing to the passive human listener. You hear what you can imagine as an oyster catcher and you think, why is that? Why is that bird outside my window? But actually it's the joy of a, a male starling trying to attract a mate in the morning and cut through the noise of everything else in that ecosystem. I love it. I think it's fascinating. I think it's and the sense of humor, you know, yeah. the communication is complex. The artistry is deep. And I believe that also you then in your music have, I know you admire the music of Starling. So you also have this mimicry process. Tell us a little bit about that section. Yeah. Oh, sure. I think a lot of composers have tried to transcribe birdsong in the past. Very famous works we, we all know about. But often I'll transcribe a little bit of birdsong because if you transcribe the whole thing, it's quite aleatoric. It's quite full on. I think some scientists believe that when you slow down certain birds' call, that its form is what you call in classical music the sonata form. So it's doing a whole sonata form all within 30 seconds, which is just remarkable in itself. And I'm fascinated by that. And I love this idea of biomimicry, where we created a lot of tools in our lives, from aeroplanes to other aspects that get us from day to day, that really have come from nature. And so going back to music, I quite like to take phrases from, let's say, the curlew and then perhaps have the cello. I'll transcribe it to notation and then have the cello reproduce that, but then develop into harmony and counterpoint and the other elements of what makes music music. So I do that, but in a very subtle way. But also I've got a library of field recordings, which, you know, I would say maybe 10% is ever used or put on a record. In fact, I don't think I've told anybody this, but every single record I've made has the sound of a curlew somewhere in it. <laughs> And so it's a little bit, it's like kind of where's Wally? It's in there somewhere. You mentioned starlings and their beautiful formation. I don't think everyone knows that their, their murmuration 
is actually beyond being, you know, artistic, uh, this wonderful display of choreography that I don't think the best dancers could do, is also their means of survival and evading predators. So it makes me reflect on this theme of climate change in folded landscapes. And we recognize that we'll have to adapt. That's the big challenge. But if we could embrace our adaptation and our survival and make it something that's, you know, doing more with less, but it's not about depriving ourselves, but maybe being more in tune with both nature and each other, working in a murmuration. That's a wonderful metaphor. When you can imagine a peregrine falcon chasing down, hunting, trying to catch one starling, and it creating this flow, this elegant choreography of dance. And I understand that each bird follows two or three other birds that follow another bird, and there's a lead bird, so something like that. I think the power of five or 11 or something, I need to study that. But I have a small video that I often play in my studio whilst I'm writing of a murmuration of starlings. But if you look very closely, and it looks very digital because I've inverted it. So the negative space of white is now black and the birds are white. Everybody asks, oh, that's a great digital representation of a murmuration, but it's real. It's come from a real murmuration. And if you look very closely, you'll see the falcon chasing, trying to catch the one of the individual birds. But going back to your metaphor, I think it's a really potent one, actually. The risks, the fear, the predatory aspect of it, and how, as a community, you respond to threat, and whether those threats are environmental or not. I think it paints quite a evocative picture of the subject matter. I often feel that a lot of facts surrounding the science of climate change and how arguments are presented can be very overwhelming to most people, and people tend to often switch off after a point I think what the arts and music can do in particular is they can make humans feel something for a moment. And it's when you feel something that you tend to make instinctive decisions about how you might change, how you might go about the rest of your day, how you might make decisions that might affect other people and the arts in particular. So this is a very potent method of doing that, I think. Oh, I think so. And feeling, we have to sustain ourselves, but we can almost live on feeling. When you think about one approaches the end of one's life, and it's not all the things, you know, even the very wealthy people who've amassed all these possessions that end up possessing us. It's not those things that are important. You want to just clutch to yourself what's been important, and that's maybe family or those that you've loved. Maybe if you're an artist, some things you've put into the world, but not all the things that one have accumulated. So the feelings we have for one another and what then for the earth become very important because that's the problem, that we're drowning in all this stuff we have made that ends up being unnecessary. And I like the metaphor then in folded landscapes. And again, it's dealing with climate extremes. But I like this idea that we have this limited plane, maybe. You know, as you fold it, we have possibilities. It can be an origami and it can be more than, right? But it's about really using every bit of this land. This is my interpretation. I don't know. Every bit of the resources, but making something beautiful out of it. I'm so pleased you used the term origami, but as a kind of narrative prompt, because, and in fact, I subtly put that in the artwork itself, which is a process of kind of triple art forms. You've got a photo taken in the 80s or 90s by my father, projected onto a new landscape of the angles of my studio, printed onto a 12-inch car, and then set fire to and then reshot digitally. And it creates a kind of origami of scale uh, where you've got all these folds, but they're all out of place in scale. And so I'm glad you touched on that. I tried to 
put that in there. But folded landscapes is really an observation. And I use temperature as the main kind of prompt and a timeline of kind of 100 years and imagining these changes of temperature and sonically how that might affect not just the composition, but the fidelity of the sound. So going back to tape on that piece of music, I recorded the classical musicians at, I think it was minus one, minus two degrees originally in an industrial warehouse in Glasgow, just to put us all through a process. And then once I'd finished mixing the strings and the record together, I put it again onto tape. But instead of burying the tape, I, I put it on my studio roof in London to sunbathe. And it just so happened it was the hottest day in the UK. And it was 40.9 degrees. Or it, was, it would certainly over 40. The tape fidelity became weaker and it created these cracks and these pop and this kind of ugliness. Sunburn, of course, these burns across the texture of the tape. And what I wanted to do was mix that a bit like creating a bit like a dough or like mixing together ingredients. I wanted to mix that into the pure fidelity of the music. So as the record is, it's a multi-movement piece for strings. And as it's developing over the seven movements, you'll hear that the audio texture is getting worse and worse. And by the last composition, it's crackling to the point of destruction, in a sense. It's becoming more fragile than ever. And the music itself, to a keen ear, you will spot that it's doing the opposite. The music towards the last movements is becoming more hopeful. It's becoming more and more hopeful. But the fidelity underneath is running as its antithesis. You've got this very hopeful, almost classical Cayley by the sixth movement, but the fidelity underneath it, the ground that it sits on, is more fragile than ever. And so I thought that would be a way to make a statement, but in a subtle way. I think as an artist, it's good to just observe and watch. And that particular prompt came from looking out the window and seeing on this hottest day, seeing how happy everybody was. T-shirts, legs out, dancing to the end of days in a sense, you know. And I'm glad they were enjoying it, but it's short-lived. And it made me think about that as a process, the fragility that sits underneath something. It's interesting, our present relationship with having all of these devices to record and to store, which are, of course, not permanent as well. We think that all the digital is but ultimately, it can be subject to degradation. No, I call um, it one day it will be digital soup and <laughs> it just exists as a soup. Yeah. So when you think about the music that has been lost, that we only have from composers past, that we only have the sheet music, or even if that, because of your inspiration from folk music, so many things have been lost or reinterpreted. So we don't know the original, which is a very interesting collaborative process, which can take place over, you know, hundreds of years. I really like also the it takes a different change in mindset, but it wasn't that people copyrighted or people had the ownership. The sense was, I make this, you continue the song. Mm. We're all in this kind of massive chorus. It's funny you should say that. There's an expression, or there was a process in the islands called, and I might get it wrong, something like to telling the kindred, which is, as it implies, it's telling the children. There'd be somebody in a community that was the storyteller, which is what we do every day in the arts and in your writing. But it was all to do with memory. And it was you pass on something and there'd be somebody who was particularly good at remembering every detail of a story and they would pass it down to the next person. And within a family, there'd be another person who was very good at the storytelling. But I love this idea 
and a bit like folk music, it's born from the landscape, from the fields where one melody is passed to somebody else. It might evolve or the lyric might change to suit the political or community experiences at the time. And it grows and it develops or it has offspring. I think this idea of when things are not infinite, you know, it's good to understand. Again, it goes back to what is precious. How do we hold things in our heads and our hearts so we can, at the end of our days, pass them on or hold them dear as you move through to the next cycle of whatever whatever moves you. And speaking of, this is off topic, but of folk traditions or Aboriginal traditions, there is, of course, in Australia, that tradition of song lines among the Aboriginal people. And how amazing, I don't even quite understand it. So instead of owning a piece of land or it was as far as the song would carry, that was somehow your song line. So maybe the birds think about their territories. Well, I suppose they do. I always think about the birds. It, often we can kind of imagine their song. Is, it's, of course, very complex, but all they're really doing is trying to communicate with a partner and cut through the noise of everything. But I love this idea of lines of song. Copyright only really exists within the lifetime of the person who's created it. So 60 to 100 years is generally before it's passed between publisher and another publisher or a family, because then it doesn't mean as, as, as much to them. But I, I like the idea of songs kind of following a line. That's a lovely thought. And again, back to the bird song metaphor.
We are all part of this earth. I feel a responsibility towards it. I feel a responsibility towards it. I feel a responsibility towards it. I feel a responsibility. Live in a more simple way. I feel as an ambition. Responsibility. Don't waste things. Think this world's precious. Think this world is precious. Think your time is precious. Think your time is precious. Think that the natural world is precious. And all those things need to All of those things need to the world is not a bowl of fruit. We are part of it. And if we destroy it, we destroy ourselves. Stop waste. Stop waste. Stop wasting power. Stop wasting power. Stop wasting food. Stop wasting food. Stop wasting plastic. Stop wasting plastic. Stop waste of any kind. Don't waste this precious world. Don't waste this precious world. Celebrate and cherish. Celebrate and cherish. I'm Dara Diamond. My background is in climate change and environmental policy. What made you realize how high the stakes are with regard to the climate crisis? We know that Folded Landscapes is entirely based on your observations of climate change. Can you elaborate on what drove you to pursue creating this experimental climate piece? Was there a pivotal moment or series of moments? I often think ideas tend to be a combination of lots of ideas. Like a good idea is generally a combination of maybe 10 okay ones. <laughs> and it's when those okay ideas that are all spread out in your head and in your day and on pieces of paper, notations and audio recordings, it's when those ideas line up and you discard the ones that make no sense to this narrative that you've been thinking about. It creates this linear song lines. It creates this linear path and you just can't get it out of your head. And the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is take a step forward across that line you put in your mind. And I think the repertoire of music I'd been making up to that point celebrates the natural world. So I thought of how I could work certain observations that I was witnessing, for example, how people respond to extreme weather conditions that are out of season or catastrophes around the world from California wildfires to low numbers of puffins on the islands or the cliff edges. And I suppose all of these things come together. But ultimately, I really want my music just to be a celebration of the natural world. Whether or not there would be states of emergency, we need to celebrate, cherish the natural world. And I think music has the ability to do that. So I suppose it was a stepping stone towards singing a certain song. Yeah, I do. I understand that you have to have, you have many of these half ideas and then you put them together, which is interesting that you can do that in different disciplines. In music, I think you can sort of bring them together in, in that way. The poet Jericho Brown has this concept of the duplex, and it, it means he knows if he writes a bad poem, there's always got to be one or two lines in that poem that's good. So then he brings them together, but it's maybe a different process with the writing of words on the page than music, although of course they're intertwined. I don't know. I think they are intertwined. I often, someone asked me, I don't know why they were asking me, but they said, how do I write a piece for a quartet or how do I write an album? And I replied, well, try writing three because invariably one will be not very good to your head 
and heart. The second one, one might be okay. And the third one, there might be something good in it. And you'll focus in on that third one. And then those other two, they won't be wasted. There'll be a fragment in it that you'll either improve upon, you'll chisel away like a sculptor, you'll shape differently, or you'll try and take a phrase, a bit like words, and they'll always find a home. So it's never a wasted exercise. And so, you know, writing lots helps. Quite, I, I get up early and I write most days from about 6 till 9, 10, 11. And then before correspondence with the world starts to kick off and nobody notices what, you know, where you and I write, nobody cares. But in that kind of process, something can always be found. I'd mentioned before that maybe writing is a bit like bird spotting. You never quite know what you're going to spot that day. It might be a seagull or a pigeon, or it might just be a peregrine falcon. And if you go a little bit deeper into the landscape or the narrative that you're working in, you're more likely to find something like a, a gannet or some other exciting bird. It's so interesting that nature can as often solve the problems. Like if they think about the circular economy, like in a very real way, nature is circular by design. It's solved it. Like we don't need to go back. Or you talked about airplanes and we imitate the birds. We solve it through observation. So you have to do a better job of observing. And in the arts, I think so often palette of nature is so beautiful if we just absorb or listen or see better. And that's the, is that right? The falcon's nose, so the nose of a falcon being the fastest animal on the planet. When they were developing fighter jets that need to dive, they looked at the falcon and asked, how does it dive? And they looked at its nose its beak, the holes within its beak and the formation. And that evolved and shaped the tip of the fighter jet or even the Concorde. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, where we take inspiration. I was looking at, <laughs> oh gosh, what's the, the original bike? The, the, you know, the big front, huge front wheel with the tiny back wheel. The penny farthing. The penny farthing. And I was thinking, I was looking at it. Of course, we look at bikes now. It makes complete sense to have two wheels, the exact same size. And it's this super efficient thing. It's like the perfect sculpture over hundreds of years. But I was looking at the penny farthing and I was thinking, what a curious design. But then it suddenly occurred to me, its saddle height is about the same height as a horse. And they probably looked at horses and were thinking, well, we're used to sitting on a horse and we're used to stepping up on a stirrup onto a horse. So perhaps it was a logical stepping stone to how it's shaped. But I thought it was quite curious. Perhaps that's why it looked like that initially. Oh, yes. I hadn't thought about that. But design is strange in the different elements. And art is ultimately its design. You said something that I really liked. It was that music transform, can bring us to other places, but can also transform our perception of where we are now. I think so, yes. Let's imagine for a moment a really horrible, claustrophobic environment, the London Underground at rush hour. And you look around and everybody's in their own spaces, connected to their own worlds. But music, you know, has the ability to kind of transport you to a place and create a sort of internal landscape. It can draw things out of you that maybe you didn't know were there. And in fact, the first record I made, Soul and Goose, was a response to a sort of claustrophobia and anxiousness that we all face on day to day and we all have life-changing things that happen to us. And I remember... I made it as a way to kind of ease a busy mind. And perhaps I was missing home. I still call Orkney home, even though I'm not there every day. <laughs> I'm a thousand miles away today, and I still call Orkney home. 
For example, when I hear the voice of the curlew, it transports me back to Orkney with such a jolt in a heartbeat. And music can do that too. It's very transformative. Visual arts have the ability to do that too. And you could stare at a Rothko painting and cry and not quite know why. It can take days to figure out perhaps certain meanings from it. But music, I think, is quite instant. It can really do that. Recently, somebody tapped me on the shoulder after a performance, a concert, and said, I recently lost my father and I put on this record of yours and I cried my eyes out. And as somebody who makes music, you can't think on those terms. You don't think about those dots that are joined. You just create something that comes from a narrative place, comes from a point that evokes certain feelings. But it made me think a little bit longer about all of the arts and how we connect with them. That's true. Well, the power of music in particular to be an allergy and to help us overcome difficult moments and to unify us, it reminds me that the Celts, which I found fascinating, how they brought music onto the battlefield. And I think women and children as well. And I think it's quite a difficult thing to bring all these people together to do difficult things so that music could be that battle cry. And when you think of that, an example of that in modern culture, of course, is the famous 80s Rocky theme tune. You know, we think of melody to picture for a moment, running up the steps of Columbia University in New York and that melody kicking off. And how many people use that as a kind of rallying call to get themselves off the sofa fit? I suppose it is something similar there. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? In Folded Landscapes, you're also rallying us. You take us on a journey. Specifically, you're bringing language in with Simon Armitage, the poets, the news clips, Greta Thornburg's moving speech. How did you decide to weave language into the album? As a composer, I write these notes that anybody could write and they make them sound a certain way that moves me. But I'm equally inspired by poetry, writing, paintings, architecture, and poetry is often and always, and I hope always will play a really important role in all of my music, whether it's a response to a certain work or the involvement of the poet themselves or a new work that's come out of a collaboration. I love it. But Simon Armitage, the poet that I collaborated on this project, and the voices that you talk about, the news clips and even Greta, they serve two different purposes. Simon acts as a sort of poetic navigator for the record. He's talking about how a swift or a swallow comes back to the same place and how baffling that is to scientists. They still don't know how and why they can migrate to such extent. Or he's talking about a twig, a stick dangling on a rock in a certain way. So he's talking about the magic of the everyday, these little things that some people take for granted. The news reports and other voices, to me, represent the cacophony of human sound that we hear on a day-to-day. They overlap, going back again to the starling who's just trying to get his voice across to capture a me. Everybody's saying certain things at certain times, but ultimately it feels quite overwhelming. And sonically it is. You layer it all up and it's really an abrasive friction on the ears. So I wanted that to really feel like switching everything on at the same time and hearing all of these voices. And so when Greta lands like the first 
swallow. It's very graceful over the top of the kind of the agony of what you hear prior. And then you hear the agony in her voice and that iconic speech that we all know from the United Nations. But really that the poetry and the other words that you hear are doing two different things to me. One is singing of the magic of the everyday and the other is a kind of very physical representation of how it feels when you just often turn your phone on and have a look at what's going on and how they coexist in this kind of deep ecology. Erlen Cooper's identity is inherently wrapped up in his understanding of nature, that I find myself appreciating nature in a different light when listening to him speak about his process of writing music. He describes himself, his family, and his work as seabirds. Over and over, he is deeply attached to his upbringing surrounded by nature in Orkney. Few are like Cooper, so enamored with nature's gifts. Do we as humans forget the beauty of the natural world? I think so. We are constantly taken aback by what nature can do. We do not seem to have an inherent appreciation for the natural world, but only marvel at its glory when it is particularly beautiful. His understanding of humanity as a mirror image of nature itself is astounding. We mimic so much from the natural world. We attempt to recreate what nature does on its own in our technology, our medicine, and for Cooper in our music. Yet, we do not revere nature, even though we attempt to recreate it in our image. What does that say about us, humanity? I found folded landscapes fascinating as someone formerly in the arts. Creating a piece about climate change to not purely warn the audience, but to celebrate the natural world is a wonderful concept. To have such dichotomies of ideas and sounds within this piece of work is incredibly interesting. It's almost like they are fighting each other, but are actually working towards the same goal. However, Cooper's celebration is a reminder and a warning to us all. We won't be able to enjoy Mother Nature if we allow it to burn. Now, back to the interview. And you've also gained inspiration from cities too, but nature seems to be the one that you really draw a lot of beyond the human voices. I'm really pleased you mentioned cities because I think I go out of my way to find the natural world in the city. I stay here at the Barbican in London and it's got these giant towers. But actually there's a nesting pair of peregrine falcons I've discovered in the highest tower. And one morning at 4am, I would normally hear the sound of a blackbird. There's a lot of bird chat in this conversation. And forgive me, I keep talking about birds. <laughs> I'm clearly a keen ornithological geek, but aren't we all? It's a good thing. This one morning, I couldn't hear the blackbird. And it was because I couldn't hear it that I awoke. But what I did hear was the screech of a peregrine falcon. And that's really inspiring. But there are times I will just walk along the street and you could see, in fact, just last night, the sun setting later. It was the summer solstice yesterday. And there was this orange burning sun just dipping down below the skyline of the city. And it reflected across three buildings through the glass. There's daylight, this last glimmer or the grimline as we call it in Orkney or the simmer dim kind of echoing across the glass reflecting across the glass and for a moment we're talking a millisecond I was on the highlands I was back home and it's those moments you know they're everywhere I love to find that little bit of magic in the everyday it is true. The natural world is full of magic. We need to never feel that sense of wonder, which is so important to take the time to notice and to listen. Hi, Mr. Cooper. My name is Sabrina, and as a classical musician myself, I had a question about your compositions. 
what is something that you've seen in the natural world that you feel you'd like to compose about but haven't yet? That's a fantastic question. I often use a cacophony of waves crashing against a cliff in percussive elements. I, I combine the field recordings of the sound of waves smashing together with timpani or even just subtly with a kick drum or a loud noise. I'd love to explore, to, to take time to almost close my eyes and listen to a landscape and try to orchestrate it fully. By that, I mean looking at, let's say, a mountain range and then almost flattening it, placing it behind the stave, the staves of music and creating a melody out of that. And then the arrangement of the rest of the harmony, the melody, almost like a painter would paint a landscape. I'd love to take a snapshot of certain landscapes and orchestrate them in a way that uses the full color palette of the orchestral form. That would be a joy because I'm not classically trained and I spend a lot of my time deep in books and deep in listening to other works and trying to kind of interrogate them and understand them better. And I've not had the opportunity to write for the full colors of an orchestra yet. So that's a joy. That's a dream. And I'm just warming up. So it feels good. I'm looking forward to that. It's exciting to see the technologies that might allow those dialogues for those who haven't had the complete training, but have a kind of internal sense of harmony, as we all must. It's kind of seeking that balance, isn't it? It's funny you mentioned dance and choreography there for a moment. I had a just the other day in the studio, a wonderful choreographer and a dancer making a short film. And I'm scoring the film, but she wanted to read some poetry that she'd written for it. So she read it and I could tell there was a nervousness and the words were perhaps not landing how she wanted them to land. And there was a frustration, but she's a dancer. And so I said, why don't I set up two microphones in this room that you can see in the studio at either side? And why don't you just dance to a piece of music? I'll pull up a cue of music and I'm working on that I think touches on the narrative of your film. And you could just read whilst you're moving and I'll record your voice. And we did it. And she's moving gracefully around the studio, left and right, stopping here and back and forward. And she's reading and every word meant something. The way she breathed. It was like watching a violinist or an oboist. All of a sudden there was grace in her words. And then of course the recording, you could hear the sound of her feet scraping across the floor and her words were dancing between the microphones and I played it back and she was really struck by how evocative it suddenly felt and how natural she felt and why wouldn't it because she's in her natural element I love that side of collaboration when something that neither of you expected that day to happen happens and it also speaks to how important our physical body, because we are embodied in our imaginations. A big question now is about AI and technology, which is doing great things, but they're never going to have bodies. So depending on which educational system we've gone through, a lot of the conversation or the education has been focusing on our heads, what you can remember. But for the arts and to reach people who are, say, dancers or very physical in their creativity, so often so many people weren't reached by by current educational models because we focus so much on this logical, head-bound kind of learning. I suppose being autodidact or you're teaching yourself, it's an incredibly healthy thing to have the opportunity to seek things out 
because you truly want to and not be put off and have a hunger for it. I think that's a positive. The reason I didn't study classical music is because I didn't have the opportunity on an island to do that. But it's interesting and you touch on AI there. How do you feel from your point of view as a writer? I mean, you must have had many conversations with the AI tools and things like that. How have you found that the relative hysteria that surrounds the subject my view on AI, ultimately, what goes in, what comes out, is edited by the creator. What you input something and what is outputted, how you edit it and how you work with it. There's nothing different to how we use tools digitally. But what's your view? How do you feel from as a writer it can work with you and how it can work against your processes? Well, I think that artists may be sensitive and maybe protect their mental space a lot, like being hyper aware of it. And so might not be at risk, except when it comes to AI replacing writers. We have a writer strike at the moment in Hollywood. And so that's one thing that you do have to protect. And I'm sure also with music, because that becomes like sampling, you know, AI sampling your music. Yes. So that's the thing about, you know, protecting one's livelihood. I think that most creative people are safe and you're probably safe in that you have your voice. And ultimately what can come out of nature or can what come out of our own minds is something that will always, for me, be more fascinating than something that doesn't really have a reason for being, right? It's a program or something, but it doesn't, it didn't say, I need to create this. I need to put my life on hold and I need to do this. That kind of urgency, which is so important, that reason. It's not, I'm just doing this because someone turned me off. It's, it's a different call and response. There's an intent for a different reason. And there's great joy that comes out of collaboration. The serendipity, if we use the example of the dancer again in the studio, that simply would not have happened unless that circumstance was put together. So much of the writing I work on, I always leave the door open for the collaboration, but it's normally towards the end. It's always with musicians, of course, but the poetry with Simon Armitage, that was the 11th hour, right in the last moment. And it's my favourite bit of the whole record, the bit that didn't exist until that final moment. But it's down to the editor, it's down to the director of a film, what they decide to put on the cutting room floor and what they decide to present to the world as their finished film. It's the important bit because they're trying to say something or they're trying to observe something. I find it all rather fascinating. I think personally in the arts, you know, you can drown in choices. So sometimes it's about, as you say, filtering out the noise. So actually your blindness and your limitations or your autodidacticism that you learned it your way and nobody else can do it that way is actually a, a talent. That's actually what makes it unique. So I think that's ultimately why we don't have to fear is that the AI has too many choices and too much information and that we've all read novels or maybe music that has just too much <laughs> you know, so ultimately, as you say, that choice, sometimes you need the clarity of going into a dark room and just that's it. Mm. It is, it becomes itself, right? It does. I think there's a few things there. One, limitations are the greatest, greatest tools for advancing something. And that's where a narrative for me works very well, but it acts like a kind of nautical map. I know where I'm going. And I know if I've gone way off course and I shouldn't be there because I look back at the limitations I've set for myself based on the stories within it. Obviously, one of our great British artists is Brian Eno, and he spoke a lot about limitations. And I had the great joy of having a conversation together, just a cup of tea 
which I thought would be 15 minutes, but we ended up chatting for a couple of hours. And he said, oh, I want to show you something. I want to show you my library and this tool I've created, his sonic library, which is decades of audio material, things similar. I call it an orphanage of sound, these files and folders that will eventually find a home. But he's created a piece of software using a logarithms that will at random pull out sounds and play them. And he can set certain parameters about, you know, I want a string sound to be here and I'd like some bass sounds to come in and I'd like some drum sounds, but it's just choosing these layers and playing them all at the same time. Again, a bit like the cacophony of birdsong. It's a bit of a mess initially, but then you can edit and you start to refine. And in those limitations that come out of this tool, and this is the point I guess I'm trying to make, is that it can be used as a tool to set limits or to burst limits or to mix things up. Out of that editing process, you can output something that to your ear sounds good. To somebody else's ear, it might not. And it's in that process, I thought it was fascinating because it chimed a similar conversation that we're having now. And in fact, I said to him, I wonder if there'll be these moments, these precious moments in the future where kids will make something and before it's inputted into the world of digital soup for AI to do what it wants with it, before it becomes the public domain, I wonder if there'll be these ceremonies where it's played in a room with five people or it's played in a room with a thousand people before it's inputted out there into public domain and can be used as a tool. And I wonder if those moments will be great celebrations. The moment we press play for the first time and digitize it will be sacred. It will be wonderful. But the moment it's digitized and released into the world, that's it. It can go and grow and land on anybody's shoulder. So I rather like that idea of kids hiding their phones and... <laughs> hiding in a library full of books and these being sacred times, you know, fast forward 400 years and it's the extreme of off-grid. This idea of, I don't want the ones and zeros of the digital form to get this piece yet in its finished form. So let's play it together before it does. I actually think, and I like to be optimistic, I think live music will become ever more precious for that. Experiences and moments of collective joyful, difficult, challenging, beautiful experiences will become ever more precious. And music and the arts and writing will all be linked to that. Growing up, my life was full of music. From a young age, I was fortunate to take piano lessons. In an elementary school, I began to play the cello. The instrument became a lifelong companion for me. One reason why I would wake up earlier in the morning and go to sleep later. It taught me about dedication, and it also gave me a community. More than any of the pieces that I played or techniques that I learned as a cellist, one reason why my experiences as a student musician stick out as important, irreplaceable memories is because of the people that I met. This is one reason why I love Mr. Cooper's music and the way he speaks about it. There's such deep thought behind his compositions and the way he incorporates the world around him into what he writes and creates. I love how he talks about the sacredness of the music we create, how what we hold in our hands is precious. Being aware of this feeling, especially being able to live with a part of us looking to the future and knowing that there's a sanctity and respect surrounding a debut listen is an idea I find deeply inspiring. Music truly does bind us together. It changes the way we think. 
I hope that Mr. Creeper is right, that even as time passes, there will always be wonder attached to the first note, and queuing up a song and hitting play for the very first time, and then sharing it with others. Now, back to the interview. The living moment that opens our five senses, or even our sixth one. I love that image of this orphanage of sound, or I imagine a vast library with little drawers where you could open it and different sounds came out. That's exactly what he presented to me. Now, mine is a mess on my computer and his not quite as evocative as pulling out drawers, but it may as well have been. I think it would be so fun, you know, because then even non-musicians could be oh, look, birdsong, or here's the cello. Well, that's it. And what the computer's doing is it's presenting what it fancies presenting to the listener that day. And then it feels like the school ground. It feels like not this classroom, but the playground. It feels like the, the area of true exploration where you go, if I put this with this and this, and I didn't mean to, and it's normally when you don't mean to do something. What I mean by that is you're freeing yourself from intent. You're just in a flow state, perhaps, that something kind of magic happens. Something that you didn't expect. It might just be better than okay. It might be good. Yes, that experimentation. And I want to not forget to mention that with Brian Eno, you are involved with Earth Percent. Just tell for those who don't know what it is about Earth Percent and the proceeds. Of course. Well, he's got a peer group, a charity of brilliant minds that are combating issues surrounding climate change. And instead of just raising money in a traditional way. There's a poetic narrative to this I rather love. This idea that if every composer or songwriter gave a small percentage of their copyrights or the royalty to nature, to earth as a percentage, then wouldn't it be interesting if one day the earth itself held the greatest copyright of music? So every time a piece of music is played or used, synchronized in film, television, or even just played in a shop or performed on stage, it generates a royalty that goes to the Bank of Earth percent. It means that a lot of musicians who don't have a lot of income can just put part of their intellectual property towards something that in the future might generate revenue. It's like planting a seed. Of course, you have to make the seed and nurture it. And my view is modest left field composers like myself are doing it, then can you imagine if the likes of pop stars, the ones that everybody hears on the radio in the taxi, if they were to donate just 1% of their writing share, then gosh, that's a game changer. And I think it's flowing that way. And that revenue is then, there's a group of people who decide how best to to spend that within the charity itself. So it was a lovely creative idea with a gorgeous poetic narrative, of course, and it's growing as a seed should. It's so beautiful because we're all these individual voices, but together we can become a roar. So in closing, as you think about the future and education, the importance of the arts and this Mother Earth that's so important to you and your creative process, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? In the words of David Attenborough, waste less, value more, celebrate and cherish the natural world. It's a pretty decent mantra to live by. So thank you, Erland Cooper, for sharing your music that reminds us that we are all part of this earth and that the natural world is precious. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. My pleasure. Lovely to meet you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Erlind Cooper's music featured in this episode is from his album Folded Landscapes. Music is courtesy of Erlind Cooper and Universal Music Enterprises. 
This interview was conducted by Mia Funk, Dara Diamond, and Sabrina Kim, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producers on this episode were Dara Diamond and Sabrina Kim. Digital Media Coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.